Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Warrior You Podcast with your host, Bram Connolly. Join Bram as he uncovers what is to be a modern-day warrior on and off the battlefield, covering such topics as human performance, emotional intelligence, resilience, mental toughness, epigenetics, neuroplasticity, philosophy, and much, much more. Warrior You, it's the performance advantage. And don't forget to check out Mentors for Military Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Warrior U. If you're anything like me, then you see yourself as a life's work. I see myself as a project that can be changed, tweaked and developed through motivation and education. I'm in the pursuit of simply being better than yesterday. If you do think like that, then this podcast is for you. Righto, let's dive in and see who we have as a guest today. Today on the Warrior U podcast, I'm talking to Lise Nottebart. Lise is a senior lecturer at the University of Western Australia, and she is an expert in cognitive processes. Her PhD focused on the allocation of attention to threatening information and how this affects resilience. Key takeaway I'm searching for today is the way we might be able to increase our own mental resilience based on her academic findings. Righto, so I think I'm pretty resilient I've passed a selection course for special forces, which seems to target resilience as a character trait. And I've been involved in some, you know, what would be classified as some really traumatic incidents Mm -hmm. that didn't actually affect me. Not yet. However, from these events, I've been able to become a better person and in some ways uh, more compassionate. So, so I think I'm resilient. That's, that's resilience, right? Is it not? I guess. No. It's, I think it's part of resilience. Right. So right off the bat, before we get into anything else, is resilience genetic? Thought I'd just bang that yes. straight in, <laughs> just go straight for it. That's a, a very simple question, but with a, quite a complicated answer, I think, because okay. resilience is, is a set of skills or a set of processes and not, not one of them has a specific 100% genetic underpinning to it. So if you see resilience as a set of tools that will help you cope with adversity, there's going to be some tools that have a genetic component to them, but then also only a component of those would be genetic. So if you think about, for example, to make that a little bit more specific, mm. the way that you respond emotionally to stress, right. whether you have a high reactivity to stress or a low reactivity to stress, that's part of resilience, and part of that stress response has a genetic component to it. So there's some genes, several genes actually, that contribute to how you respond to stress, whether you tend to overreact or 
underreact or whether you have a reaction that's kind of just right to be able to deal with stress. There's some genes that contribute to that, but a very small amount. Right. And so there's some genes that contribute to other processes. So. so I can see a vehicle blown to smithereens in front of me and I won't immediately be stressed by that, but I can then drop a sausage off the barbecue and absolutely lose my mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so is that is that a genetic profile? Is that a certain genetic profile? And not everyone would obviously react the same way because of their genetic profile and a whole lot of other things that we will talk about. But Yeah. yeah. Well, whenever you engage in uh, a certain behavior, that's going to be a combination of your genetic profile the situation that you've encountered in the past and the situation that you're in at the moment. So your genetic profile will contribute to a certain way of responding to stress, whether that's like not having a very elevated response to stress or having a very elevated response, maybe not very elevated, let's say. But then that might be expressed in one particular situation, like when you see someone being blown up, for example. Whereas in another situation, you override that genetic profile with other factors that means that you're going to blow up and you drop a sausage. Yeah, got it. Mm. You shouldn't be dropping the sausage. (laughs) Righto, so what are you working on right now or just previously what were you working on? They're a really interesting thing with the bushfires. A lot of my research is interested in looking at the cognitive processes that contribute to how we feel. So how we feel as a response to certain situations, but there's a step in the middle where our cognitive processes about the situation that we're in also contribute to how we feel. Mm-hmm. So you can have a situation, for example, where you're, you're waiting for a date and you can have different emotional experiences in that situation. You could be very angry and maybe that's because you think that you've been stood up and that they're being inconsiderate, and that will make you angry. Whereas you could just be quite neutral and to say, well, traffic is a bit heavy, Uh, maybe they're just running a little bit late, and so you would be feeling neutral or excited. So in the same situation, having a different cognitive process will contribute to different emotions. So we know that our cognitive processes are very important in terms of how we will feel. And so my research is focused on identifying the cognitive processes that contribute to adaptive and maladaptive emotional responses in certain situations. Yeah, right. Okay, so having those different responses, and this is, you know, you you are so much smarter than me, I find myself still trying to process what you've just been talking about and ask you a a leading question. (laughs) But, you know, with regards to how I might feel, like if someone cut me off in traffic, if I've taught myself by saying, okay, road rage is a thing. I'm not going to allow myself to get angry about that. I'm not going to give that other person that satisfaction. I'm just going to, is that me training myself being resilient or am I just, what am I doing with that? I think that is a process that will help you be resilient in that particular situation. And so that is something that you can train people. You can basically, whether that's through therapy or by reading books, self-help books, or having that experience in the past and realizing that adopting that kind of mind frame is actually helping you to then not get really aggressive in traffic. There's different ways that you can be taught this specific skill, which is reinterpretation of the situation rather than just going well they're jack as you just go well no it's better to just not experience this in such a negative way just let it go Mm. yeah i think i remember um and we'll get to the bushfires piece in a minute because i'm really interested in that but um i think i remember it was peter brock years ago he was on the radio and he said you know what you don't know why 
that person's speeding or why that person yeah. cut you off. It could be that their child has been in an accident, yeah. that they've just been diagnosed with cancer, that someone's dying. You don't know the situation, so just let it go. It's got nothing to do with you. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a really – I guess that was a really profound thing for me to hear because now I probably give people – and it's one of the things that used to piss me off is like <laughs> people not being able to drive, but now I give people – sort of the second... You give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, exactly, yeah. because you don't actually know what's going on in their life and maybe that's maybe having that thought has made me more resilient. Yeah, mm. yeah. it would okay. have. It, it protects you against having a very negative emotional response to that particular mm. situation. Yeah, cool. Yeah. All right, so the bushfire work that you did. So the bushfire work, we were mainly interested in the process of attending to negative things in your environment. Because in my research area, we have found that having an attentional bias to negative information makes people more anxious. A potential bias. Attentional bias. Attentional bias, which means what? This means that you're more inclined to attend to negative things in Uh, your environment than you are to attend to neutral or positive things. Right. And so some people uh, show such an attentional bias. So if you put them in a situation, in an environment where there's lots of different sources of information, some of them might be slightly negative. Imagine that you're... Oh, my God. I've just, had, I've just understood so many people in my life right now. Yeah. <laughs> so some people have a bias, an attentional bias towards negativity. Yeah. Oh, that's so profound. You're, right. you're entering a party, yeah. uh, lots of people there... Mm. People who have a negative attentional, attentional bias yeah. will be more likely to pick up on all the little negative things in, in that environment. So yeah. they will attend to the people who are frowning, maybe, or who look angry, or, I don't know, some kind of punch ball that's balancing yeah. precariously on the edge of a table. Right. Whereas other people will walk into that room and pick up on all the smiling faces and pick up on the music and yeah. decorations and will attend more to the, to the positive things in that environment. And what we've known... In our research area, what we've established is that if you have such a negative attentional bias, you're more likely to feel anxious. Of course, because you're picking up on all the little threats in the environment. Um, so that means that you experience your environment as a more threatening place, as a more negative place. Ah. And you're going to think, well, there's a danger there. That punch ball is going to fall over. Or this person is angry. They might start a fight. So that makes you feel very anxious. Yeah. Uh, and is that person generally more pessimistic? It's associated with all these negative emotional characteristics. So as a leader, as a leader, if you're a, if you're a junior leader or in the military or the police or something like that and you've got someone who's perhaps always, oh, this is bad because of this and, you know, they're quite pessimistic, perhaps their attentional bias is more towards the, the negative, ne- negative things. things and yeah. – Right. And so that's an – and then you would be able to understand how to be a better leader for them if you understand that as a part of their character. Yes, Mm. But at the same time, and this is where the bushfire research comes in, in some situations it's important to attend to the negative things in the environment. Right. So if, you, if you're an air traffic controller or if you're I know, directing traffic or if you're on the bike and you're in a, a complex traffic situation, you need to pick up on potential threats. Um, so we know- oh, so negativity isn't just sad faces. It's a, it's a it threat. Could it could be Okay, okay, okay. So if you have an elevated attentional negative bias, you'd probably be a pretty good forward scout in a special forces unit because you'd be scanning and hyper alert. Yes. But then if you came back from war and continued with that attentional bias towards negativity, that could be a trigger for post-traumatic stress. It could backfire and it could make you more anxious, yes. 
That's fascinating. So in the bushfire context, what we realized is that having that negative attention bias isn't always a bad thing. Mm. And that's how we saw it before in our research. We thought, well, this negative attention bias makes people anxious, so we need to find ways to train away their negative attention bias. And mm. that's what we, we've been uh, researching. But then if you think about people who are living in bushfire-prone areas, we were realizing that a lot of people are not well prepared. They don't prepare their property. They don't mm. have a fire plan. Mm. And we were wondering why that is. Mm. And we started to think, well, in this situation, you have to pick up on potential threats. You have to look at your gutters and see that there's a lot of leaf litter in there and that needs to be cleaned up. Leaf litter around your house, you have to trim the trees, you have to, you have to develop a fire plan. You have to realize maybe this year fire season is starting earlier because it's been a very dry winter. You have to be able to pick up on those cues to then motivate your behavior to do something about it and make yourself safer. Mm. So it really depends on the situation that you're in, whether your negative attentional bias is going to be a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. Because the reason, often people ask, like, why are people anxious? Why are people depressed? What's the evolutionary advantage of that? And the same thing is asked about attentional bias. Why does that exist, given that it just makes To stop saber-toothed tigers from ripping your face off, I'd yes, assume. exactly. To If there's a bus coming at high speed at you, that you step back yeah. and get out of the way of that bus. Right. It's just that... If you start applying it in context where it's not adaptive, right. then it's going to contribute to a lot of anxiety. So in the bushfire research, we started to look at looking at in which situations is this negative attention bias going to be adaptive and in which is it going to be maladaptive. Right. And maybe resilient functioning comes from being able to flexibly change your patterns of attentional processing depending on the situation that you're in. Right. So, for example, in your military example, if you have a big attentional bias to negative information while you're on deployment, that could be a good thing because you, there are genuine threats that you have to take into account in order to survive. But then when you come home, you have to be able to switch that off and, and understand, not pick up yeah. on all these minor threats that are now around, but that actually either you can't do anything about it or it's not worth trying to do something about mm. because that is just going to make you more anxious then. Yeah, right. That is brilliant. And so to take it back to the bushfire setting, did you find that there was a – there were people that didn't have that attentional bias that you had to then motivate to do something about it? We did find that there's a, a large range in people who showed the attentional bias to negative information and people who didn't. Mm. And we found that for people who are generally less anxious, if they had an attentional bias to negative information, that was good for them. They were better prepared. They were the people who were well prepared. Ah, so they're but using it as a strength. They're so they're, they're seeing threats and then they're motivating themselves to deal with those threats. But the people who... Yeah, okay, the people who had that association and, and were anxious were just they were less ambivalent to, yeah. so were concerned but didn't do anything about it. If you have that negative attentional bias, even in a situation where it could be adaptive, for example, when you're out on deployment, yeah. it's all only going to be adaptive if you actually then engage in the behaviors that help you right. mitigate that danger. Yeah, uh, you but can't it, use that word. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but if... If you oh, for that, sorry, that was a word that was written on Lee's board that she's not allowed to use because um, some people can't understand her accent when she uses that word. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but if you're a type of person who freezes when mm. they encounter threat, mm. then you could have that attention bias, but it's not going to drive your behavior yeah. to do something about the it's danger that you're encountering. So it's again, it's a complex combination between your cognition, your emotion, your behavior, the way that you respond to your emotion that makes like a good cocktail or a bad cocktail in right. a particular situation. Okay. So mental toughness. Yes. Is just resilience, right? Or is it different? 
now that we know that resilience, there is certain genetic profiles to resilience, and I know you're going to tell me later on that resilience can also be your environment can impact or can raise your level of resilience and what you see your parents do, for instance, and yeah. how they how they deal with setbacks. Yeah. So as a young child, that can help to strengthen your resilience. If, if your parents are, and I'm, you know, I sound a lot smarter than I am. I've only heard you talk about this. But if your parents, you know, in front of you demonstrate that they've had a setback but they bounce straight back, then you're more likely to learn that behaviour. Yeah. So mental toughness. So to me, resilience is a like a, a toolbox that helps you deal with adversity. And in my view, mental toughness can be one of the tools in that toolbox. So to me, it's not the same thing, but it is a part of what contributes to being resilient. Okay. So mental toughness is more about seeing potential problems or adversities as challenges and then being really confident and positive that you can overcome those challenges. And is that from uh, maybe a constant exposure to small parts of those challenges through training, immersion, therapy and you know like for special forces for instance we would you know we would like to test people to see if their environment if they're comfortable in certain environments and some of that might be working at heights with a gas mask they might have Mm. to climb things and then jump off wearing a gas mask where their vision is you know restricted and that comes down to we do it at small heights then larger heights then large heights and then we throw them out of aircraft (laughs) and that can slowly build up your mental toughness yeah Yeah. so i think the way that you develop those tools in your resilience toolbox Mm. is often through exposure so you're exposed to a certain situation Mm. either you learn from others about how to deal with it or you just you learn through trial and error the best way to deal with it and you develop that skill and often with as with any skill i mean it's the same of how you learn to ride a bike is put put someone on a bike maybe put some training wheels on Mm. and and they acquire that skill gradually through training i think with mental toughness and a lot of these other skills it's the same thing you're exposed to things where you realize that that going through them in a mentally tough way is helpful to you mm. and that builds that mental toughness right so that's it's one of the end, tools yeah in the end it can be become one of the tools in your in a toolbox and that's also why people sometimes say that people you become a stronger person after having dealt with some adversity and often i think that is because you've developed some tools to deal with the adversity that you experienced and now you can use these tools in other situations as well right. and is that what cognitive behavioral therapy is as well is that the same sort of thing or yeah so are you are we is that where a psychologist is building someone's mental toughness through a reflection or yeah so i think in in therapy what you could do is and what therapists often do is help people regulate their emotions and that would be one of the tools that is important to resilience having the ability to regulate your emotions properly and you can learn that in therapy and there's other things that you can learn in therapy as well to help you deal with your emotions or with adversities that you experience therapy can help you develop those tools you can you can get them through other means as well but therapy is one of the ways in which you can develop those tools okay yeah so so the resilience partly made up of your genetic profile partly made up from your upbringing and your environment and the demonstrations that you've seen from adults when you were younger yeah it's partly made up through maybe your own training of mental toughness exposure you know one you know having a mantra one more step you know yeah. something like that some some way I, I mean we can talk about that in a minute then there's also physical fitness 
So if you're, I would assume that if you're physically fit, like the, the more physically fit I was before deployments, the less those deployments impacted me in the first instance because I wasn't, yeah. I didn't have to, you know, go into the well, you know, yeah. you know, go into the resilience well and start drawing on it. I was fit enough for it not to bother me. I was more comfortable in an arduous environment, which means I had, I wasn't as mentally taxed by it does that make sense or is that does make sense because having a good diet a sensible diet and doing lots of exercise we know that that helps people Mm. maintain very good mental functioning and if you've ever been on a diet or you know someone who's been on a diet and deprived themselves of the amount of calories that they would need Mm. to sustain their activity i'm on the coffee diet at the moment it's pretty much all that yeah. Well, then you would know that people can get get really grumpy or they can deal less well if mm. certain things are thrown at them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, you know, they, they don't have enough energy and so they get impacted a lot more by minor things. And that's just from like a minor diet before Christmas or after Christmas, for example. Right. So if you are, if you have a balanced, nutritious diet, if you exercise well, so you're physically strong, that will help you to be mentally strong as well. Yeah. And I've heard that the stomach is and, and the nervous system is just as much part of mental health as yes. the brain. Yeah. So does that mean that certain foods perhaps could lower or strengthen your – I know this probably isn't in your wheelhouse, Lise, <laughs> but I'm just wondering if certain foods could strengthen or lower your resilience actually. Obviously alcohol is going to have a detrimental effect to brain function. We know that. Mm. Mm, interesting. And and there is a lot of research that has been done on certain foods and how they contribute to mental well-being and also your immune system, for example. Mm. So I know there's lots of research on probiotics mm. and how they contribute to mental well-being and physical well-being. Right. So gut health probably has just is probably a layer of mental resilience, one yeah. of those layers. Yeah. Okay. Same as sleep. Sleep is really important for adaptive functioning. So if you manage to sleep well, that's going to help you be resilient. Right. I mean, people listening to this podcast would have heard me say before that sleep is a weapon. I'm a big believer in getting, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll try and get eight to ten hours sleep a night when people will let me. Can we test to see if someone is resilient? Is it possible to test someone without going through the, Special Air Service Regiment Carter course or the Commando Selection Cycle to see if someone's resilient. Is there is there some is there a, is there a written test? Is there a is there something that you can? Is there a blood test? Can we can we test mitochondria? What can we do? There's no blood test that I know of. And if you think about the way that we've defined resilience as being, a pr- when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN process where you you maintain adaptive functioning in the face of adversity that's really how you would have to measure it as well Mm. so if you want to have like a kind of physical test of resilience you would have to expose someone to adversity and then see how they function in response to that right there's no way around that yeah 
there are questionnaire, questionnaire measures that people have used to index resilience, and they ask questions like, how quickly do you bounce back after a setback? And you can lie your ass off with that. You could lie. You could think that you're resilient because it's self-report. You only yeah. get what people believe they are rather than maybe what they actually are. Right. Plus, you can be resilient when it comes to work stuff, but then be completely not resilient when it comes to dealing with family problems. Yes. So oh. by just asking how resilient of a person yeah. are you, you're not getting into that nitty-gritty right. of maybe you're more resilient in this area than that area. Yeah. There is now, and this is part of what I've been doing as well, there's an exciting new way, I find it exciting at least, mm. a bit nerdy maybe, of measuring resilience, which consists of measuring the adversity that people are exposed to and then measuring outcomes, emotional, behavioral, physical outcomes. Right. So, for example, imagine that you're interested in assessing resilience in older people who are experiencing health decline. Mm. You want to see how resilient people are. What you could do is you can measure their health decline. So you can, you can ask, have you been diagnosed with arthritis or heart problems? And so get an, a measure of the adversity that they've been exposed to. But this particular type of adversity, because that's the type that you're interested in. Mm. And then you measure the outcome. So you measure symptoms of depression, anxiety. You measure whether they engage with the community, whether they have strong social networks. You measure how well they're able to do chores around the house. Mm. And then you can do some fancy statistical analyses and see overall in the whole group of people that you measured, you kind of expect the worse the adversity, the worse the outcomes. So if you have more health problems, you're going to be more depressed, more anxious, mm. you're going to be able to do less stuff around the house. Mm. But then you can look at whether people actually perform better than what would be expected of them given their level of adversity. Yeah. So you can do a statistical analysis where you say, well, people who have this level of adversity typically have this level of anxiety symptoms and depression symptoms, and, but actually you have less than that you perform better than what would be expected of you based on the adversity that you've experienced. Wow. So you can say, well, you're a resilient person yeah. because you're performing better than what we would predict statistically yeah. from what you've encountered. Cool. And so that's a way to measure resilience where you don't rely that much on self-report in terms of are you a resilient person or not, and you make it very specific to the type of adversity and the type of outcomes that you're interested in. Yeah. I've read some uh, really interesting stuff the last few months and talked to to someone who I think she's a, I think she has a PhD in psychology as well. I can't remember. And she was talking about how the the victims of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. their children's children, the genetic makeup for resilience of them is super powerful. And epigenetically, what they're looking at is is there an association with the Holocaust and what those people went through in that four years and the overall makeup now of the Jewish community. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Epigenetics is really interesting to see how the expression of your genes can change depending on what your parents or your grandparents have gone through. That's a very interesting field of research. And there is some evidence that that contributes to resilience as well, where if you have a parent that is highly stressed while you were a little baby, for example, mm. that can change the expression of your genes. It's not going to change your genes, mm. but it's going to change the way that they're expressed. Yeah. And so you might have a higher stress response as a child because your dopamine system has been affected mm. through the expression of your gene as compared to when your father wouldn't have developed that, wouldn't have been in that stressful situation. Right. 
Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? But at the same time as well, if if the parent then shows good resilience in response to that adversity, yeah. if they model the right kind of behavior, that again can change the expression of your genes to make you more protected against negative impacts of adversity. So it goes both ways. Yeah. Can we train the subconscious? Yes, we can. To be more resilient? Yes. So okay. we can change the same way that you can change some of these cognitive processes that contribute to resilience. You can change them in therapy in a very conscious way. So you can, you can teach someone to not always interpret things in the worst possible way. Right. But as you said with the, with the traffic example, yeah. you can also think, well, maybe, maybe they're having some kind of emergency and that's why they're driving like it. So do you always need a framework in the background then to be able to draw on? Like for me, the framework is that, you know, the fact that Peter Brock, the famous racing car driver, said that. And because he said that, I've got a frame of reference for why that behavior is happening in front of me. Yeah. So that's a very explicit thing. But a lot of the cognitive processes that are going on in our heads, we do that happens very implicitly, very mm. unconsciously. And you can train those unconscious processes as well, those implicit processes. Yeah. So you don't need to provide a whole different frame of references. What we do is have very simple computer tasks that encourage you to process the information on the screen slightly differently to what you have been used to. And then we get people to do that for 45 minutes to an hour mm. or repeatedly across weeks. And that changes the, the way that, that they attend to negative information, for example, in a way that they don't even realize. What? So you're showing them something negative and getting them to click on a plus sign or something like that. Or... Yeah, we show them something negative on one side of the screen, mm. but then show them a target that they have to respond to on the other side of the screen. A target that they have to put a cursor over or something like that. Yeah, for example. Okay. Yeah. Or like two dots and are they aligned horizontally or vertically. Okay. And so that's what they have to do. For an hour on end, they have to look at these two dots and say whether they're aligned horizontally or vertically. Oh, so they're filling out sort of a, a report or something. They just do it. We, yeah. we show a picture, yeah. show two dots, and then they, they click horizontal or vertical. Wow. Okay. And so an the hour. picture... They don't know what order the pictures are going to come in. The pictures are like yeah. negative expression, positive, or yeah. And then we so we show negative and positive pictures at yeah. the same time. Yeah, all right. But critically, the dots always appear on the opposite side of the screen as the negative pictures. Ah. And people don't realize this. If you ask, like, did you oh. notice any relationship between the negative pictures and the dots? And they, they can't have pick no it idea. up. But what you're doing is you're training them to look at less negative. To look away from the negative because that's where the <sighs> dots are going to appear. And so you're slowly training their sub conscious to not um attend attend to yeah. attend to the negative images yeah making them more positive yes that's nasty <laughs> to see if that's not nasty that's exciting yeah i suppose you're not yeah yeah okay you're not doing it with rats so that's all that's cool. <laughs> mm. and then to see if that actually affects mm. their emotional functioning we then Okay, and this may be nasty. We then put them through a stressful experience in the lab. Yeah. So, for example, we would have them give a speech. Yeah. And most students tend to be a little bit socially anxious. Yeah. Or we give them a task that we tell them, you should actually be, you should actually do pretty well on this task. But then we rig the task such that they do, actually, they do pretty badly. And we see how anxiously they respond to that particular stressor. And so we can show that if we train people to look away from the negative picture, because the dots are going to appear on the upside side of the screen, they respond with less anxiety to a lab-induced stressor as compared to when we don't train them. Mm. 
when we just show the dots on random locations. So we can show that if we change the way that they attend to negative information, to attend away from it, you then put them through a stressful situation, they are less anxious in that stressful situation. Is that right? Yeah. So if someone's got a fear of flying, do you think you could remove that fear of flying through that sort of process as well? I don't know if people have tried that. The thing is with fear of flying, because it's a specific phobia, Yeah. What we know works really well for those is exposure. Right. So, so cognitive behavioral therapy, slow behavioral immersion therapy. of yeah, yeah, of putting them through that situation, yeah. talking them through that situation, and then in the end, putting them on a yeah. plane and supported by someone. Right. Um, but we know for specific phobias like fear of flying, like spiders or yeah. heights, exposure oh, therapy works really well. So, did you see me? When you said spiders, then start to cringe. <laughs> oh, God. I had one in, I was in Somalia as a young guy and I, was, I woke up, I was 19. I woke up in my sleeping bag and I could feel all this um, sort of like water all over my face. And I was like, what is that? And I went to wipe my face and I flicked off this massive oh. uh, camel spider oh, that in the desert had been attracted to the my breath and had been sitting over his abdomen over my mouth and all this liquid, oh, it was gross. And to this day, if you know what? I've done a lot of bad stuff and seen <laughs> a lot of bad stuff and that's the thing that creeps me out the most now, yeah. that and walking into the golden orb spiders up around North yeah, Queensland. Of- they get the, 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 the web goes all over your face and anyway, I'm going, down a, I'm going down a rabbit warren now that as a psychologist I probably shouldn't be talking to you about. <laughs> but exposure therapy for spider fear works really well. I Is have a little right? bit of spider fear as well. And when, when I was a PhD student, one of my colleagues needed to practice her clinical training skills. And so she needed to practice giving exposure therapy to mm. other people. So I said, well, you can use me. I'll be your guinea pig mm. uh, to practice on. And so she had three spiders in the room and she wanted me to ha- let me let the spiders run over my hands. Oh, my God, I hate this woman example. already. <laughs> and I thought the smallest one, no problem. I can do that. Yeah. I can handle the smallest one. There's no way I'm putting the biggest one on my hand. There's yeah. no way. And an hour later, it was running over my arm, uh, so letting it run from one arm to the next. It's really, really effective. Okay, moving on. Uh, <laughs> how does a traumatic experience create post-traumatic you know, traumatic growth? Yeah, growth. Yeah. And, and why does it create growth in some people? And stress, and really, you know, in almost to the point where they're not able to function in others. I think that comes back to that toolbox mm. and whether you, through that traumatic experience, have been able to develop some tools, some skills that you can then put in your resilience toolbox, so to say. Yeah. So, in some people going through a traumatic experience and then, for example, realizing that you have strong social networks, you can count on the support of your friends and family. Mm they come out of that feeling like a stronger person uh, because they, they feel like they can handle the mm. next situation that would be thrown at them because they, they suddenly realize, they may have not thought about it before, but they suddenly realize that they have really strong networks that they can count on. Mm. Whereas for another person, they may not have had that experience of realizing that they have st- strong social networks. They might not have strong social networks. And so they're left coming out of that experience not really having learned anything, not having developed a tool to help them cope with a similar experience that's going to come up next. And I've seen like 
let's say, for instance, videos of, there was a video getting around in the 80s, 90s, early 90s, of a Russian soldier having his head cut off, for instance, by a Chechnyan rebel. It was really graphic. Yeah. And it was, well, it must have been in the late 90s, actually, because it was when, you know, YouTube had almost first come out. Yeah. And I remember being really, like, help, feeling really helpless for that guy, and that affected me, not, you know, not long-term, but obviously I looked at it and went, geez, I really wish I'd been there to be able to save that poor yeah. kid. Yeah, he was a kid. He was a young conscript. And so I think it's that helplessness of not being able to do anything about it that perhaps yeah. – because the only time I'd ever felt like that again, and, and again, as I, you know, I go back to before, I've been involved in some pretty, you know, hardcore sort of traumatic, you know, events – but the only time I felt like that again where it affected me was when we were on receiving the receiving end of a Taliban guy setting off remote-controlled IEDs. Again, something yeah. I can do absolutely nothing yeah. about. So it's only when I felt helpless that I had any sort of understanding of what PTSD must be like for these for people that have it. Yeah. But it didn't exactly. affect me then after because I was able to compartmentalise it a little bit, then talk about it with people and then go through some sense making and then reevaluate, relive it probably. Yeah. And then go, okay, cool, got it. That was that. Uh, I'll be better prepared next time when that happens. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I, I sort of wonder how, you know, I wonder in some ways if, if there's an inoculation for post traumatic stress based on having that toolbox well defined and having strategies ready to go and not feeling helpless about the event that you're in. Yeah, and I think that's a really important one, not feeling helpless. And that comes from recognizing which situations that you have control in or which aspects of a situation that you can control. Right. And because that's where you can actually do something to avoid negative outcomes potentially or to act, um, which is always good, making decisions for yourself, acting in a way that is going to help you reach your goals. Mm. And a lot of the research that I do now is looking critically at situations where people have control over negative outcomes and people and situations where people don't have control right. because some of the processes that we're talking about can be good in the situations that you have control if you have control over danger it's good to attend to it because you can do something about the outcome if you don't have control you shouldn't be attending to the, these negative things because it's just going to make you anxious right. so for example i remember those videos about the beheadings on youtube yeah. and i i remember thinking i'm not going to look at those no you have no, no, I made control. a rule not to do that later too, yeah. Yeah, you have no control over what's happening there. You can't do anything about it. The only thing that it's going to do is it, it's going to make you anxious. It's going to make you have flashbacks. Mm-hmm. So there's no upside in looking at those videos. So you're removing what is a negative experience to maintain your resilience? To maintain my positive emotional well-being, and that is resilience. Right. Having that ability to differentiate now it's good for me to do this, now it's bad for me to do this, and in this situation I need to be attending the threat, in this situation I don't. I think that is one of the tools, making, being able to make that differentiation that's going to help you function resiliently. Yeah, right. That's fascinating. And that's something that you can teach people. You yeah. can teach people to, if they're exposed to a certain adversity, mm. teach them to concentrate on the as- aspects of the situation that they what can they control. What they can control. So, so with that sort of reasoning... And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here. I'm going to ask the question. So with that sort of reasoning, if you have an incompetent leader Mm -hmm. who is making the wrong decisions, the chances are, well, what are the chances of you having PTSD because you know that person's incompetent and you can't control, you know, they've put you in harm's way they shouldn't have? 
yeah, not having control over the environment is predictive of negative emotional outcomes. Right. I don't know the extent to which but if, you, if that's if you, caused if you by mix, someone else. Yeah, if you mix yeah. that with being pissed off with yeah. the army or the, or the unit you're in or the commanders that you've got because they're incompetent, I would assume that that would exacerbate that negative emotion. Yeah, again, it's probably going to be a combination of several factors. If you can, after the fact, if you can debrief with that person, right, yeah. if you can talk about it, identify maybe where it went wrong, that could be protective perhaps. Yeah, because when before we went to Afghanistan on my last deployment in 2010, I made a, a real you know, deal of or a, a real thing of reading a book called On Combat by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grosman and I trained my platoon using that theory of having a structure around chaos first of all building a structure around chaos so we could sense make when when stuff went bad and then so I was ready for most things and then also having a debriefing structure so if someone had to kill someone or if someone was involved in a critical incident I could sit down with them almost straight after the fact sometimes in the field yeah. And say, listen, mate, this happened because of this reason. You took the following actions. I'm really glad you did because you're now still alive. Yeah. You need to right now deal with the fact that you did this, understand that you did it, and if you didn't, you wouldn't have another day on the planet. Yeah. And let's move on. And yeah. I found that guys were really receptive to that. Yeah. So that briefing was really important. And I guess that goes back to what you were saying before about, you know, being able to at least then show that they had control. Yeah. Even though they might have felt like it was uncontrollable at the time. That they made the right decisions uh, and that they're supported in those decisions as well. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest oh. predictors of resilience is social support. Right. So, and whether that comes from the person that you're working for or your family or your friends, one of the biggest predictors of resilience right. is social support. So that would be very important, that debrief process in yeah. terms of bringing the group together, having shared experiences, sharing those experiences, sharing the emotions, supporting each other, like making it clear that even if it was a difficult decision to make, they're backed up in that decision. Or I guess I'm going decision that that's just yeah I, I, it happens. Listening to you say that, I sort of think about how so, some of the people in the wider defence force were just left out, you know, left without any support after things happened. Like for instance, yeah. you know, rocket attacks on the base, and then the next day it's just like go on as business as usual. Yeah. Whereas we'd go out to hunt the perpetrators. Yeah. So for us, we're dealing with that issue and and drawing it out. Whereas other people are sitting back there. And they're completely alone. They're with yeah. their own thoughts. No one's talking to them about it and they're really affected by it later on. Yeah. That's really interesting. And that could be why different people respond to different stimulus. Some get post-traumatic stress and some get post-traumatic growth because of how they not only interpret it but the support network after the fact. Yes, definitely. Huh. Yeah. So, yeah, the support network, during the support network, after, they're all very important in terms of those long-term positive outcomes. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that's what Dr. Don Lane was saying as well. Okay, so for young people listening who might be thinking about joining the military and they want to build their own resilience so that when they're getting yelled at, they don't crumble, (laughs) (laughs) going through Royal Military College or Kapuka or something like that, what would be some techniques that they might, used to to prepare themselves for what is probably unknown to them and they don't have any help to do it. Yeah. 
So in terms of building resilience to specific types of adversity, you'd have to look at which tools could be useful for you to deal with that particular adversity. So you could talk to people who've gone through that experience and ask what worked for them and then try and build those kind of skills. And is that a type of visualization exercise then? It could be visualization exercise. It could be just someone saying, you know what, planning is really important. The ability to plan plan ahead, Mm. that's really important. And you may not necessarily know that in advance. So have all your administration done so that when you're getting yelled at, you don't think, oh, this this is this is left unchecked at home. Yes. I'm going to withdraw own request because yeah. so you're giving yourself an out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's one part of it. Yeah. Building social networks. Right. Will so be important as well. It's something that we tell. So as soon as you get in your new platoon. Yeah. Try and make friends. Try and engage with the people around you because they're going to go through the same thing, and you can be a support network for each other. Right, and so then you've you've sort of nullified that shock of capture a little bit. Yeah. The old. Stockholm syndrome type yeah. thing. So I don't want to compare going through a PhD to going into the military, but it's something that we advise our PhD students as well. A PhD is a stressful time. It's yeah. highly demanding. And so we, I, I encourage my PhD students to come into the lab because they don't have to. They can work from home if they want to. Mm. But to come into the lab fosters those, those friendships with the other PhD students so that when they encounter those difficulties, they have that strong support network of people who are going through the same thing to help them out. And that's going to be the case in many different types of adversity that you experience. If you can connect with people who are going through the same thing, even if it's joining a support network, for example, if you're, if you're having to deal with grief, join a support network of other people who are dealing with grief, that is going to be really a really important tool to help you be resilient. Yeah, I like it. Mm. We've covered so much. We have, yes. <laughs> Dr. Nutabat? Yes. Thank you so much for being on the Warrior You podcast. Thanks for having me. And uh, I hope that I can, you know, I'll get probably a million questions from this and have you on again at some stage and we can answer some more of this fascinating topic. That would be lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 